Hi, I'm Chris Irwin. Welcome to The Come Up, a podcast that interviews entrepreneurs and leaders. So in 2017, we had a meeting with the editor-in-chief at the time, and he was like, let me sit you guys down and redo this out loud. And it was what would become Dirty John. That's when we realized there's something here that I think could be our first big swing in audio and in podcasting. And we got to talking, and at that point, we were like, I think we can do something here. And I think there's a story here to be told in audio. When it launched, it sort of took us all by surprise with how well it did. Obviously, we knew it was a good story, but I think you never know when something's going to be that much of a hit. Today, it probably has over 80 million downloads. This week's episode features Camilla Victoriano, co-founder and head of partnerships at Sonoro. So Camilla grew up in Miami as a self-described nerd with a passion for books and fan fiction. She then went to Harvard to study English literature and history, which led to her early career starting at the LA Times. While there, she became a founding member of their studios division and a quote-unquote audio champion. Then in 2020, she went on to co-found Sonoro, a global entertainment company focused on creating premium, culturally relevant content that starts in audio and comes alive in TV, film, and beyond. Sonoro collaborates with leading and emerging Latinx storytellers from over a dozen countries to develop original franchises in English, Spanish, and Spanglish. Some highlights of our chat include how fan fiction taught her to see nerds as heroes, being in the room when Dirty John was pitched to become a podcast, her crash course to figure out the business of podcasting, becoming a first-time founder during COVID, why the Mexico audio market is like the U.S. four years ago, and why there are no limits to Latino stories. All right, let's get to it. Camilla, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me. Excited to be here. For sure. So let's rewind a bit. And I think it'd be helpful to hear about where you grew up in Miami and what your household was like. Tell us about that. Yeah. So I grew up in Miami, Florida, you know, very sort of proud and loud Latino community, which I was very lucky to be a part of (laughs) um, in sort of the Coral Gables, Pinecrest area, for those that know Miami. And my household was great. I mean, my dad, he worked in shipping with South America. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. And so really, as most kids of immigrants, I didn't have I had obviously parents I loved and looked up to, but it was very different than folks that maybe have parents that grew up in America and you had the ins and outs of the job market and schools and things like that. But really great household, really always pushing me to be ambitious and to sort of reach for the stars. So I was, yeah, just lucky to have parents always that were super supportive. Questioned a little bit the English major, that path that I chose to go on, but (laughs) we're generally really, uh, really happy and really supportive with everything that I that I pursued. Yeah. And where did your parents emigrate from? My mom is Peruvian and my dad was Chilean. I have been to both countries to surf. I was in (laughs) Lobitos in, I think, northern Peru. And I was also in Pichalemu in Chile. And yeah, just absolutely beautiful countries, great food, great culture. So do you visit those countries often? I visited Chile once, much to the chagrin of my father, but Peru I visited so many times. And yeah, they they both have incredible food, incredible wine. So you can't really you can't really go wrong. I did Machu Picchu and Cusco and that sort of trip with my mom once I graduated college, which was really great just to go back and be a tourist in our country. But they're both beautiful and yeah, I love going back. Oh, that's awesome. All right. So Growing up in your household, what were some of your like early passions and interests? I know yesterday we talked about that you had an early interest in storytelling, but in some more traditional forms dating back to, I guess, the 90s. But yeah, tell us about that. What were you into? I was always a huge reader. It's funny because my parents read, but not super frequently. My grandparents were big readers, but I always, always gravitated towards books. I remember, you know, like many people of my generation. When I was six, I read the first Harry Potter book and that was just like mind-blowing for me. Wait, at and si- I think, at six years old? Because I think I yeah, learned to honestly, read at like five. I had help with my mom a little bit. But, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but uh, I remember we read it together and we would just like mark with a with a crayon every time where we ended on the page. But I remember that book was like, I think when I first really understood how detailed and how sort of enveloping worlds could be. And I think starting from that point, I just went full on into fantasy, YA, all sorts of books. I was just reading sort of obsessively. It also helped that I was a, you know, nerd, <laughs> a classic nerd in middle school and high school and sort of all throughout childhood, really. So I think for me, books 
literature stories were just a way to see the world, see people like me. You know, a lot of times in fantasy books or in sci-fi books in particular, you have sort of the nerds as heroes. And so I think for me, that was a a big part of why I gravitated to those genres in particular. But yeah, I just read all the time. And then I did sort of like light gaming. So I played The Sims. <laughs> Again, similar idea though. You're, you're world building. You're sort of like living vicariously through these avatars, I guess. But that was really how I spent most of my time. Obviously played outside a little bit too, but I was a big indoor reader always. Got it. This is interesting because the last interview I just did was with Adam Reimer, the CEO of Optic Gaming. And we talked a lot. He was born in the late 70s. So he was like a 1980s self-described internet nerd. As he says, before being a nerd was cool. So he was going to like web meetups at bowling alleys when he was just like a young teenager. I guess I have a through line with you because he was in Fort Lauderdale and you grew up in Miami. So two Florida nerds, you know? Yeah, nerds unite. I love it. <laughs> nerds unite. You also mentioned that you also got into fan fiction. Were you writing fan fiction? Were you consuming it? Was it a mix of both? A mix of both. So that's really in middle school in particular, how I really bonded with my small group of friends. I remember my best friend and I, we connected, we were like on the bus reading a Harry Potter fan fiction on, at that point it was fanfiction.net. And that is also, again, similarly, because in person with people, it was just like, we weren't really connecting that much. And so that community online was huge for me and my friend. We read all the time, you know, people had comments, you had editors that you worked with, and we wrote them ourselves too. And I think, you know, looking back in the retrospective, for me, that's where I think I first started to realize the potential of world building really in storytelling and in media and entertainment. It's like, it didn't stop with the canon text. You could really expand beyond that. We love telling stories about, you know, like Harry Potter's parents and <laughs> how they would go to Hogwarts, like super in the weeds, deep fandom. I don't know. I think for me, that was just a real eye opener too of like, oh, there's a whole online community. And I don't think at that point I was really thinking business, but I think for me, that's where I started, I think, to to redirect my focus like much more seriously too of, oh, there's this isn't just like, oh, I like books for fun. There's people all around the world that are incredibly passionate and spending hours upon hours of time, oftentimes after hours of school to just write and to really immerse themselves in these universes. And I remember, you know, writing them and reading them, just realizing how badly I wanted to be a part of creating things that caused the same sort of feeling. And so for me, that was huge in, in that respect too. Well, thinking about fan fiction, literally there are now companies and platforms that are worth hundreds of millions of dollars that foster fan fiction, the communities around them. Like I think of Wattpad, where you have, mm -hmm. you know, film studios and TV studios and a lot of the streamers that are now optioning IP from these fan fiction communities to make into long form premium content. Pretty incredible to see. So you go to high school and then you end up going to Harvard. I think you end up becoming an English major at Harvard. Was that always the intent from like when you were in high school? It's like, yes, I'm going to go and get an English degree. What were you thinking? How did you want to spend your time in college? And then how did that evolve after you went? I was sort of typical good student in high school, right? I, but I think the older I got, the more I realized, oh, no, my passion really lies in my English classes, my history classes. Obviously, like I think math, once I got to calculus, I was like, all right, this might not be for me. Um, and then <laughs> yeah. science never really gravitated towards. So for me, it was always very clear that even though I tended to be sort of like a generalist in many things, my passion and my heart really was in writing and reading and stories and in history too, in the real world and how they sort of intersected and how they affected each other. And so I remember when I was applying to schools, Again, my parents were like, are you sure you want to do English? Because <laughs> for them, it was in Latin America, like many of the schools don't have sort of like that many practical degrees like that. You pick something a bit more technical. So I remember I would tell them, oh, yeah, don't worry. I'm going to do English, but I'm going to minor in economics, which, you know, never <laughs> happened. Um, once yeah. I got there, I was like, absolutely not. But that's what I would tell them because I was like, oh, no, I'm going to be an English major, but I'm going to have some business acumen to go with it. And I think at that point, when I was going into college and applying to schools, what I wanted to do was go into book publishing. And I really wanted to, I remember I had seen <laughs> that Sandra Bullock movie, The Proposal, where she's like an editor. And I was like, that's what I want to do. <laughs> and so I, at that point I was, you know, I was talking to, we have this really awesome local bookstore in Miami called Books and Books. And I went and met with the owner, Mitchell Kaplan, had a conversation with him. And I remember he told me 
I told him I wanted to get into books. I wanted to get into publishing. And he's like, look, you're, you're young. You're getting into college. Like I run a bookstore, but I would tell you, don't worry so much about the medium. Just follow the content and where the content's going. And that was like a huge eye open. Like, even though it seems now obvious to sitting here saying that, I think for me at that age where I was so, it's easy to get like one track mind of like, this is what I want to do. And there's nothing else to get that advice from someone who was running a place that I like loved and went to so frequently growing up. And I think that for me gave me a bit more flexibility going into college of saying, okay, let's see where, let's see where I gravitate towards. I know I want to do something creative. I know I want to still study English, but maybe he's right. And I don't have to just stick to publishing. So when I got into Harvard, I still, again, focused my classes really liberal arts, right? Like film classes, history classes. But I was a bit more, when I got there, unclear of what that would actually lead to in an exciting way, I think. But that was probably a really great piece of advice that affected sort of how I thought about what would come next after Harvard. Yeah. So following that thread, and I really love that advice of don't worry about the medium, just follow the content. Clearly, I think that really influenced a later decision that you made about doubling down on audio. But before we get there, in terms of following the content at Harvard, it seems like you dabbled in a few different things where you did an internship with the LA Times, which is maybe news and journalistic reporting. You're also a staff writer for the Harvard Political Review. So what did following the content look like for you when you were at school? So Harvard can be a really overwhelming place. You know, my mom had gone to college. My dad hadn't finished. So it was sort of a semi-first-gen college experience where I was like, whoa, once I got there. It was incredibly, the first sort of semester and a half were really, really overwhelming. And I was, I had to sort of get my bearings a little bit. But I think once I got there, sort of, I tried to dabble in a lot of things. And I think, you know, there was a literary magazine, there was the Crimson, which is, you know, a classic. And then there was a few other organizations like the Harvard Political Review at the Institute of Politics. And so I I sat in a few things and it's crazy. I mean, for people that don't know, like once you get there, you still have to apply to these things. (laughs) Like you're not (laughs) like you haven't gotten there and then you're done and you're good to go and everything's set up. Like there's a pretty rigorous application process for most of these clubs, which makes it overwhelming. And so for me, what I ended up finding a home in, in terms of just like the community and the way they welcomed you in when you came into the club was the Harvard Political Review. And as one does in college, like you get a bit more political, you get a bit more aware of what's going on around you, world politics. And so I think I was in sort of that headspace already and wanted to flex a little bit of my writing skills outside of class. And so there I was able to really pitch anything. So I would pitch, I remember like culture pieces about, you know, the politics of hipsters of all things. Um, And then (laughs) like would later do a, a piece on like rhinos that are going extinct. So it was really sort of varied and allowed me to be free with the things I wanted to write about and explore outside of class and in a super non-judgmental space that was like, yeah, pursue it. And we had all these professors that we had access to to interview and to talk about these things. So it was just a great place to flex the the muscles. But I think mainly my focus in college was like building relationships with my friends, if I'm totally honest. Like I think as someone that's super ambitious and super driven, I was very sort of particular and followed step by step exactly what I needed to do in high school to get into the, to the school I wanted to get to. And then once I was there, I was like, let me enjoy this for a second. Let me like meet people and like have fun and intramurals and, you know, just like wander a bit, wander a bit, a hundred percent. And I think especially freshman year and sophomore year, was very much like, let me just wander, take random classes. I took a computer science class, which was like a horrible mistake, but like just (laughs) give give myself the opportunity to make mistakes. And I think then by junior, senior year is when I realized, okay, no, I still like this path that I'm going on. I like the storytelling. I like literature. I like writing. Maybe I'm leaning a bit more political. Again, that's why I, I applied junior year for the LA Times internship because that through line of, I still want to be in storytelling. I still want to be in media, but now in this college experience and sort of getting into young adulthood, I'm becoming much more aware of like the political and socioeconomical world around me. Let me go into media that's maybe pushing that forward a little bit and a bit more public service, I guess. Clearly it was a positive experience because I believe that after graduation, you decided to commit to the LA Times full-time. Yes. And just to go back on a, on a couple points you noted, just about wandering. I think, you know, when I review resumes for people that are applying to my firm, Rockwater, my first internship was right before my senior year of college, like the summer before senior year. I now look at resumes where people start doing internships literally in high school. Yeah. And they, have, <laughs> they have like six years of working experience before they graduate. It's super impressive. 
you know, my little brother took a gap year before Harvard. And I think that wandering around and figuring out what he likes, what he doesn't like is really valuable. And I always tell people like my own professional career, I did some things early on that I didn't love, but I learned a lot and it helped shape to where I want to point myself later on. So I think that's really good advice for the listeners here. Absolutely. I'm curious. So was there any kind of gap period or do you just get to work at the LA Times right after you graduate? I sort of went straight into it. I took a sort of the summer after college to travel a bit. That's when I went to to Cusco with my mom. I went to Colombia. So I sort of went a little bit around Latin America. But other than that, sort of that fall went straight into it. But I think to your point, and again, sort of taking a step back a little bit, like freshman summer, I went to study abroad in Paris for the summer. So just again, I had traveled outside the country maybe once or twice, but not a lot. And so for me, that was a really, I was like, let me utilize some of these resources <laughs> that I have. And so it was, again, that wandering. And then the sophomore summer, I worked at a literary magazine. So again, sort of going more deep into literature. So I did dabble in a couple of things here and there before fully committing, but after graduating, pretty much went straight into work. And so you get there and are you again working in the publisher's office? Working more broadly sort of for the business side, quote unquote, of the company, right? So I'm working on business development really broadly. What that started as was how do you diversify revenue streams? How do you develop new projects from the journalism? Basically, what are new ways to make money in a digital space? We pursued projects at this time I actually got to see through to fruition because I was there full time. An event series within sort of what was called the Festival of Books. We developed sort of a new zone focused on digital storytelling. So we brought on VR companies, audio storytelling companies, just thinking about how to expand what the company was sort of putting forward as storytelling, which was cool to me and also an interesting dynamic for me as someone that loved books to be like, let me throw VR into the mix, into the, <laughs> into the book festival. But it was it was really sort of fulfilling. And, and sort of after pursuing a few different things, developing a couple sort of like platform pitches internally, what really stuck with our team and with me was in 2017, sort of a year into that job, audio as a real sort of business opportunity for the newsroom and for the media company. So in 2017, we had a meeting with the editor-in-chief at the time, and he brought us this story, and he was like, let me sit you guys down and read this aloud to you. It was like very cinematic, but it was what would become Dirty John. The editor-in-chief read the story out loud to your team. Yes. So it was just literally, it was a team of me and my boss, and that was it. And he was like, let me sit you guys down and read you this out loud. And it was what then Christopher Gofford had, the journalist had written as what was going to just be, you know, a, maybe a series online for the paper. And I think that's when we realized like, oh, wait, there's something here that I think could be our first big swing in audio and in podcasting. And we got to talking. And at that point, Wondry had just sort of gotten started to another podcast company that obviously now sold to Amazon Music. And so we met with Hernan and the early team there. And we were like, I think we can do something here. And I think there's a story here to be told in audio. And so, again, a year out of college, I'm there sort of helping put together the production team that would create this massive story or what would become a massive story we didn't know at the time. And what I was able to do was basically help primarily the launch strategy and help the marketing teams and the sales teams put together what's this actually going to look like when we get this out there was the first time we had done anything like that. And so it was a pretty sort of wild experience. And then, of course, when it launched, it sort of took us all by surprise with how well it did. Obviously, we knew it was a good story, but I think you never know when something's going to be that much of a hit. And I think today it probably has over 80 million downloads and it's been adapted both scripted and unscripted on Bravo and Oxygen and had a season two sort of ordered on Bravo. So it was sort of a crazy experience. And I think for me, it was just like the ding, ding, ding of, oh, hey, remember what Mitchell told you <laughs> in high school, which was, you know, follow the content, not necessarily the medium. And for me, you know, I had never really explored audio at that time. My parents were not people that listened to public radio in the car. Like that was not something I grew up with or that environment. So that was really my first entry point into audio and into podcasting. And as I started to dig into it more, I remember I was like such a late listener to Serial and to S-Town. And I was like, oh my God, this is unreal and something that I've never heard of. I've never heard anything like this before. I've probably never read anything like this before. And so I remember I asked my boss at the time, I was like, can I do this full time? I was like, can I just work on building out this sort of audio division and this team? And I think at that point, luckily, because Dirty John had been such a huge success, everyone was like, yeah, this is worth doing in a more serious way. Before we expand on that, this is a pretty incredible story. So 
you're in the room as your editor-in-chief is reading you the Dirty John story. So just remind me, with Dirty John, it was initially just a story. It wasn't like, oh, hey, we created this because we want to make this into an audio series or anything else. It was just, hey, Camilla, like you're looking at different ways to diversify revenue for the company, looking at different mediums for our content. Here seems to be a pretty incredible story. And was your editor-in-chief recommending that you make it into a podcast? Or is that something that came up in the room in real time? No, I think he had already been thinking of it, and that's to his credit, right? And he was like, I think this might be it, and how do we sort of get this done? And then I think Chris Gofford in particular is is a great journalist, and he writes sort of these amazing, more sort of feature-length pieces. And so his style of storytelling really lended itself to that, as opposed to sort of a breaking news reporter. And so he had already sort of thought when he got the piece, this might be a good podcast or it might be our good first podcast. And I think he brought us in because we were sort of like the R&D crew of two that existed in the organization to really help make it happen. And so again, once we connected with the Wondery team and put the LA Times team together, like it was sort of a match made in heaven, I think. And it worked really, really well. It seems like you went right to Ernan and the Wondery team Were you like, hey, we should talk to some of the other audio and radio companies that are out there? Or did you just go straight to Wondery? We just went straight to them. And to be honest, I think that was something else our editor sort of suggested. And I think, to be honest, it did end up working really well because I think, you know, we were coming from a very journalistic perspective. And that's where I started to learn a bit more of the different ways to tell stories in audio, right? Start very character-driven, really narrative, as if you're making a movie. And so I think that It was a great match, honestly. And I don't think we may have maybe looked at other things here and there, but it felt like a good fit right off the bat. You said you were working on the marketing strategy and the launch, right, of the series. Do you think there was any special things that you guys did? Obviously, it's an incredible story and it really resonated with audiences at scale. But were there any initial marketing tactics or buzz that really helped tip that into the mainstream? I think what we decided to do, which was perhaps different than how some podcasts had been marketed before, because till then it had really been public radio driven was, I forget who who said this, but it was basically like, let's market this as if it was a movie or like, what would we do if we were launching a film? And so we really sort of went all out in splashing our newspaper with these beautiful full page spreads. You know, we were the LA paper. And so we had all this FYC for your consideration advertising that would, you'd see those spreads for movies all the time. And so we were like, why don't we just make one of our own? And so it was a full team effort with the designers, the marketing team, me and my boss at the time, and just putting together this plan where we really went all out. And I think that definitely caught the attention of our subscribers, which obviously were the first touch point to this story. And we did similar things online where we sort of had what's called a homepage takeover, where basically everywhere you look online, you're seeing advertisements for Dirty John for this story. And so we had newsletters. And I think a lot of that sort of 360 approach to promoting it online, in print, although that's not as common, but on social newsletters and really just hitting all the touch points is something that definitely I have taken with me in my career. And I think is also just becoming much more common across podcasting as we launch and others launch more sort of narrative nonfiction, fiction series, that sort of thing, where they're becoming really entertainment franchises beyond just, you know, a really great, maybe nonfiction or reported story. But I think absolutely the way we thought about marketing it helped to change the way that our subscribers and then the listeners that came in through more word of mouth saw the show and understood it for, oh no, this is like entertainment. It's journalism driven, but it's entertainment. It's a really good note because like an increasing challenge for any content creators or content marketers, how do you stand out through the noise? There is more content across more mediums today than ever before. And so how do you really cut through the noise, drive mass awareness, but also be focused and really go after a niche community as well? It's not an easy formula. Sorry, that was just, I wanted to go a little bit back in time, but that was really helpful context. But then to the point where you said, okay, you're talking to your boss, your leadership, and you're like, I think there's something really big here in audio. I want to focus you know, my efforts here full time. I also think this is interesting, Camilla, because when we were talking yesterday, you said that you took an atypical path in some ways where you really, you followed the content, you followed your passions. It wasn't like, I'm going to go to school and then I'm also going to get like a dual computer science degree or economics or some quantitative math. And then I'm going to go do two years you know, at McKinsey or an investment bank. And I think 
you following your heart, it's then puts you into these serendipitous moments, like being in the room when your editor-in-chief comes with Dirty John. And then you're like, hey, I've been working on like these passion projects. I think there's something to do here in audio. Like, let's go forth together. And then you're just happen to be in the room at these incredible moments. And then you're raising your hand for where your heart is telling you to go. And it's obviously put you on an incredible path, which we're going to talk more about. That's something that I'm kind of just taking away here from hearing your story. Thanks. That's a great way to put it. <laughs> it's following my gut a little bit. And I think it just goes back to, again, my how I was raised. And, you know, I think my parents were always, there's this funny saying in Spanish, el que no llora no mama, which is like, if you don't cry, you don't get fed, basically. And so <laughs> I sort of took that to heart and like, yeah, I have a passion and I think that Part of me, the inclination is like, oh, if I work really hard, it'll get noticed. But sometimes it is like, no, you have to really sort of actively say it out loud. And I think sometimes for people that are younger, like I was the youngest by like 10 years in a, in a lot of the spaces I've been in, it's hard sometimes to do that and to raise your hand and say, I want this. But I think when I really felt it, I did it. And I think it's it's something I've just been working on in general. So you raise your hand and you say that you want to focus on what you perceive as a big audio opportunity for the LA Times. What does that look like for next steps? Really what that meant was I was the only person working full time on the business side on this project, which was daunting, but also great because I got to sort of have different touch points with all the teams. And so for me, it really became how do I build essentially a mini startup within this legacy organization? And how do we make something that moves quickly and can be nimble and can be experimental in an organization that, as I said earlier, is nearly 140 years old at this point? So it was really exciting and really daunting. And so what I did first and foremost was figure out a good cadence to meet with my colleagues in the newsroom. And what it allowed me to do was really focus on offering them insight into the content that was really working well in the space that perhaps is maybe a bit more data-driven, I would say. Like I was really looking at what was working well and also working with our data and product teams to see what are the types of stories that listeners, or in our case, readers, were gravitating towards and offering that insight to the journalists and to the editors and really working hand-in-hand with them to figure out, based on that, what were they excited about turning into audio or what were they excited about putting resources behind? And so I was focusing a lot on content strategy in the very beginning of how do we follow up this phenomenon, (laughs) which was also, I think, for everyone, you know, you have this huge hit, you want the sequel to be just as good. And to be clear, so the data that you're looking at is both, you know, in terms of the content that the LA Times is putting out, like your articles, I'm not sure if you were also doing video as well, looking at who's consuming that How often are they consuming it? Is that type of content performing well relative to other content? In addition, looking at metrics for just podcasting overall. What genres are performing well? What do the formats look like? Is it short form or long form audio? So you were taking that for your own understanding and then educating a lot of the writers and the journalists in the newsroom. Because when you put that information together, better ideas can start to germinate within your business. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. And then what they would be able to offer me was insight sometimes into maybe investigations they were conducting, or they would be able to tell me, yeah, that is a great story, but maybe the sources aren't going to speak on audio. So it was a really wonderful collaboration between the business side and the newsroom in a way that was really organic and really respected the work that they were doing, but also offered them a bit of insight into, hey, we're exploring this new thing together. Here's how we might do it in the best way. And so I was doing a lot of that and a lot of sort of that more high-level content strategy, basically, to guide the editors into figuring out what might come next. And then also just, you know, doing everything else, basically, that the journalists weren't doing, right? Or that they couldn't do because they were busy reporting amazing stories, which was, you know, building out an actual business model for what this might look like, which was difficult because it was very early days. And our sales team had never sold a podcast before. They were, you know, had sold digital, had sold print, had sold events. And also marketing is like, how do we replicate what we did with Dirty John in a way that was sustainable and in a way that how do we replicate that by tracking what actually worked well from that experience, right? Because we could always splash all of our pages and splash all of our online presence with images and with links to the show, but figuring out how to sort of basically make a report of what actually worked to drive listeners. And so it was a lot of in the very beginning sort of trying to digest and figure out what are the things that we could replicate and what's sort of like the quote unquote formula that worked in Dirty John and others. Some of the stuff is hard to to quantify and you can't measure, 
but trying to measure as much as I could to be able to build out a plan for, okay, we think we can make this many more shows and they have to sort of hit these particular metrics. And, you know, I was doing a little bit of everything. Like I literally, like I said, my sales team or the sales team at the LA Times, like they had never sold podcasts before. So I was literally calling podcast agencies and selling ads. You were selling ads yourself. <laughs> yeah, I was. I remember I called ad results. We were doing a show about Bill Cosby, which is not an easy subject to pitch to sales. But I was, you know, getting on the phone, calling people and selling ads into the show. So it was really scrappy. <laughs> yeah. So essentially a one person team where you're creating the vision and the business plan and then also executing against it as well. That's a lot. Did you have a mandate from your leadership, which is like, hey, Camilla, we believe in your vision here, but we want within one year, we expect like X amount of revenue or within three months, come with a clear business plan and how much capital you need to grow it. And then we're going to green light it. What were the expectations from your boss? Yeah, you know, it wasn't anything that specific, to be honest. Like, I think mainly the the main sort of mandate very broadly was like, hey, this this needs to make money after a certain point, right? And it okay. can't go on, <laughs> like, yeah. it can't go on for so long of just, because, you know, a lot of people while making podcasts is cheaper than making a pilot, it's also very resource intensive. So while maybe it's not a lot of like cash out the door, it's a lot of time from a lot of people to make something that is high touch investigative, like a year of reporting sometimes. And so I was asking a lot of the newsroom and the journalists. And so I had to work with our finance team at the time to build out a model that basically showed at least break even for year one, and then started to make some profit after that or some revenue. And so, you know, it wasn't a super strict thing, but I think obviously they wanted it to be revenue generating and sort of relied on me and my counterparts on in the finance department to put that model together. And again, it was, I was an English major. I had never made a spreadsheet. I had never made a model. VLOOKUP was very new to me. Like all of that was the first time I was doing any of that. So for me, those next sort of three years or so were an incredible crash course into all of the practical skills that perhaps I hadn't learned in the English major was those were all learned in that time period of building a business model, putting together business plans, content strategy, and then sort of executing marketing plans and sales plans at the same time. So I have to ask, clearly your love and your passion is for storytelling, right? So now you're figuring out like the business plan for how can you actually create a new sustainable business that's going to tell stories in a different way on new mediums. Did you enjoy doing some of that business work or was it more of like, eh, like I don't mind doing it because it allows me to kind of execute towards this primary goal? Or were you starting to see like, oh, I actually kind of like using both sides of my brain and operating on both sides of the house. What did that feel like for you? I think it was definitely the latter. I think I never expected to like quote unquote business as I had always thought of it, right? Like I think there are certain things that I could really do without. Like I did not love sales, <laughs> calling and pitching. I was like, I could do without ever doing this again. But I think for me, what I realized during that time period and working with the folks on the finance team, our COO, our sales, I was like, these guys are all really creative and actually like figuring out how this is going to work and how this is going to be sustainable is actually weirdly fun and interesting and challenges my brain. <laughs> and it's it's funny to put it that way. But as again, as an English major, as someone that didn't grow up with parents or in a community where people were doing sort of really traditional jobs or working as like, you know, high powered business executives, like I had never been in that space. And so I think for me, like the brainstorming of what are we going to do? What types of shows are we going to make? How is it going to make money? How are we going to make stuff that's meaningful and powerful and makes a difference, but also not go broke. Like that was actually really fun for me and really creative in a weird way. Business can be creative. And at the same time, I got a lot of joy from just sitting on in newsroom meetings and hearing their stories that they wanted to tell and working with, call them creatives, but the journalists really. And I think that's when I realized, oh, I can be in this space. I can be in this creative space as a sort of like facilitator of all these people that are, maybe have the boots on the ground making the stories. And I actually really enjoy the operational part, weirdly. And I think my brain does like being in both sides where I can brainstorm stories and I can be a part of green light meetings and I can have my opinion based on obviously like personal taste, but also like what I understand about the market. And at the same time, really enjoy putting spreadsheets together, which sounds so lame, but it was fun. Hey, listeners, this is Chris Irwin, your host of The Come Up. I have a quick ask for you. 
If you dig what we're putting down, if you like the show, if you like our guests, it would really mean a lot if you can give us a rating wherever you listen to our show. It helps other people discover our work, and it also really supports what we do here. All right, that's it, everybody. Let's get back to the interview. I think you're hitting on a couple notes which are important. So just one, I think I can just sense from our listeners some like tears of joy. We are calling like finance professionals and like the FP&A teams at these media businesses that they have creative aspects to their work. I think they really appreciate that. But I think it is true. And I think, look, I've seen this because I started after my banking career. I was very early in like the YouTube MCN, like digital video days. And there's all these incredible visions of how to build these new modern media businesses. But the actual like business fundamentals of how do we make money? How do we have sustainable profit where we can keep doing this year over year? I feel like a lot of those big questions were not addressed. Now that's fundamentally changed like 10 years later. But I think people with your mindset is, there's a chance to bring great content to these new audiences that want to consume content in different ways, but we got to find a way where this is, you know, there's business sense here, right? Where there's going to be money pouring in from partnerships and from brands or from investors or from the fans themselves. And that allows you to keep building, to keep iterating, to create something beautiful and great and different. So, you know, clearly you have a really sharp mind for this. This is a good transition to talk about how you ended up going over to Sonoro and meeting Josh and being a co-founder of that business. To tie a bow in your LA Times experience, where did you essentially eventually take the business before you decided to do something else? By 2019 or so, we had launched about eight or nine different shows. They were true crime, sort of limited series, but also what was important to us was to have some more recurring community-driven projects. Like we did a really wonderful show called Asian Enough with two of our reporters, Chen Yamato and Frank Xiong. And it was just about what it means to be Asian enough and how that sort of question is something that they ask themselves a lot and other people in the community ask themselves a lot. And I think that's like a, in general, a question that I as a Latina can relate to. So there was a lot of also really, I don't want to say public service, but really community-driven projects as well that I was really proud of. And then also, of course, you know, we had Chasing Cosby, Men in the Window, Detective Trap, all these really awesome true crime series that were sort of our bread and butter by the end. And luckily, all of them did really well. I mean, they all would hit sort of the top of their charts. A couple of them, I believe, are are in development for, for TV. And I was just really excited to see more than anything, too, that the process of brainstorming those ideas and of bringing them to life was so much smoother by the end. Like our sales team was total pro at selling podcasts by the end. I, you know, now they still have a, a podcast salesperson. Like I think what I was most proud of from year one to year three, basically, was that it wasn't anymore like a struggle to push these things through. It was very much LA Times Studios, as we called it, was really embedded in the organization. And podcasts were a real serious part of, of the business of the LA Times and still are. And we got to make some amazing shows. All of them had advertisers when they launched, which was, again, for us, a huge success metric. We were able to sell things before they even came out because advertisers trusted us to make it successful. And I think that was a huge a huge success point for me, having been on those calls in the beginning. <laughs> I feel like that's a little bit why, too, again, making this sort of jump into Sonoro, why after that point, I felt good about leaving because I was like, I feel really great about what I've built and what I've helped sort of set up here. And I feel, I feel okay that I can step away now. Okay. And so were you planning on transitioning out or did this opportunity to work with Sonoro kind of come up and you're like, Hey, this is kind of hard to turn down. It was a little bit of both in my head. I was sort of itching for something bigger, a bigger challenge, sort of how I mentioned LA Times Studios is really this mini, mini startup within a legacy organization. I had sort of gotten the itch of building something from the ground up and feeling really excited about that. And so I think at that point, you know, I had been at the LA Times total, including my internship, probably for close to five years. And so it had been a really solid run. And I think I was ready to look for my next challenge. And sort of as I was in that headspace, just so happens, got introduced to to Josh through our mutual friend, Adam Sachs. And when I met him, I think our energies just really, just to jump right into it, I guess, but our energies really, really matched well. Like we met over Zoom a couple times. And when was this, Camilla? This was in early, early, early 2020. So gearing up for what was to come, <laughs> unknowing, <laughs> unknowns right to COVID. me. Yeah. yeah. And so we had met a couple times and 
I'm a real detail-oriented person. And I think like what was exciting to me about working with someone like Josh was like he came in and really was had a really inspirational vision for what he wanted to achieve. And I got very excited and felt very aligned with that vision and what I had been thinking about recently over the last few years, just being in the audio space and in media. And I thought, you know, might as well go for it. I felt like it was the right time for me to do something from scratch, to take honestly a risk and what seemed like a risk at the time because I had been working in a very sort of traditional company that probably wasn't going anywhere. And in general, I think like in my life had been pretty risk averse. Like, <laughs> like I think I had just done everything like the way I was supposed to do it sort of, right? And so I think that for me, this was, okay, I'm gonna take a risk. I'm gonna, I feel like I've gained a lot of confidence over the last five years and a lot of skill sets and I'm ready for the challenge. So yeah, chose to jump in it with him. Camilla, what's the quick elevator pitch or overview of Sonora? So Sonoro is a global entertainment company that creates audio content with the goal of developing it into TV, film, books, other audio derivatives. And our community focus is 500 million global Spanish speakers and U.S. Latinos. So our entire shows are made by Latinos and our entire team is 100% bilingual and bicultural. In terms of being inspired by the vision, were there things from the outset where you're like, hey, Josh, I love this idea but here's what I would do a bit differently. Was there any of that in the beginning? What I was able to offer was sort of the experience being in the industry, right? And so I think my eagerness really came from wanting to try shows that were outside the podcast norm a little bit, quote unquote. We had done a lot of true crime at the LA Times, but I was really excited to try stuff that would resonate. You know, for Sonoro, it's really our core consumer are the you know, 500 million global Spanish speakers and the U.S. Latinos. Again, I came from Miami. I'm a Latina. What was exciting to me in general about creating stories that were empowering Latino creators was let's not set a boundary about what the narrative that they have to tell is. Like, let's let them tell sci-fi stories, fantasy stories, horror thrillers that maybe don't have anything to do with being Latino, but are just feature Latino characters in it like they would any other sci-fi. And so I think for me, what was really exciting was pushing those boundaries a little bit and leaving that creative flexibility to the creators and trusting them and their experiences, knowing that if we really relied on the specifics of their experience and their story, like inherently that would have a sort of universal impact. You know, what we, Josh and I talked a lot about in the beginning was the success of shows like Money Heist and those that hadn't come out yet sort of reaffirmed our point later in the year, like Squid Game and Lupin, that you know, more and more people were consuming global content that was, if you're a French person watching Lupin, there's probably so many inside jokes that I totally missed, but I still really enjoyed it. But they're going to enjoy it even more because it's culturally specific to them. And so I think that's what, a little bit what I was really trying to push forward in the early shows that we made and, and still today of we can be really culturally specific so that if we're making a show set in Mexico, Mexicans are like, oh yeah, this is really made for me and I get this. And this is this sounds like where I'm from and who I am. But someone that is listening in the Bronx can still really enjoy it and have a sense of like cultural community with the story. But it's more universal in that sense. Got it. Very well said. So you align on visions with Josh, but you also have your distinct point of view. And then is it like, hey, within one to two months of meeting, you join the Sonoro and you help kind of co-found the company, build it to what it is today? Or was there a longer courting period? I think we literally talked on Zoom twice. <laughs> And then I was like, all right, Camilla's on board. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't know. We just, we, we really got along really well and we clicked really easily. And I was like, I think this can work. I think we have a good rapport. We always joke. We're both Capricorns. So I think what are the attributes of a Capricorn? Very driven, very type A, very uh, low BS. So I was like, okay, I think we can, we can understand each other. So I don't know. It just felt right. It felt like everything was aligning, right? Like I was getting that itch to go and build something and start with, in general, I was just saying like, I want to start with like a really young team. Like that's what I wanted to do. Like that's sort of as far as I had gotten in my headspace about it. And then to get this sort of connection from Adam, literally as that was happening, it just felt like way too serendipitous to pass up. And also then to have honestly such like an immediate connection with Josh of like, oh, okay, I think we can work well together. And I think we understand each other and how we like to do things and how we like to work. That still to this day, nearly three years in is true. I think it checked so many boxes that I was like, I just have to, again, it was like the first big risk I've taken, honestly, career-wise or, you know, school-wise, if I'm looking that far back. But it felt right, and it felt like the right time to do it. So I just went for it. 
Well, so it's funny that you say all this. I've known Josh for a few years now. And in terms of how you describe him of like, he's very ambitious, very driven, very direct, no BS. That, that yeah. is Josh to a T. <laughs> yeah. Um, and as I'm getting to know you, I get that sense as well. And, you know, literally just, I think we spoke for the first time yesterday, but I'm also seeing just how complimentary the both of you are in working together. So I think that explains a lot of the recent success that we've seen with Sonoro over the past few years. Not surprised. You know, after a couple Zoom meetings, you guys partner up. And then what do you first start working on? So the first year that we really started and we really sort of formally kicked things off, kid you not, March 2020. So it was weird timing. But really what we were first trying to do is test out if we could actually make things that people loved. Like that is all we cared about. We were like, can we make shows that people love, that people binge, you know, into the deep in the middle of the night? And can we do it well? And can we do it at a high quality? Because I think that was important to both of us is in general, when you're seeing, especially in Latin America and the U.S. content for Latinos, like, like traditional telenovelas, the production value just isn't there. And so that was really important to us. And so the first year, we, you know, we launched a lot of sort of your traditional bread and butter podcast chat shows that sort of really quickly climbed up the charts personal interviews, comedy, wellness, sort of your traditional categories in Mexico specifically, and started to build out our network there really quickly because I think a lot of the creators that were more independent there saw us as a reliable resource to help them grow their shows and to really be, for us, it was like, we want to be the partner of choice for any creator, podcaster, media company, executive director that wants to work and make really great content that just so happens to be created by Latinos. And so that along with let's make stuff people love were our two big mandates in the beginning. And it worked really well. Our first sort of original scripted series launch that we did was a show called Cronicas Obscuras. It was a horror franchise that we launched in October for Dia de los Muertos. And that came off of a similar premise, which was Latinos over index in horror. We love horror movies, horror shows, anything. But most of the horror shows or movies that do really well are either based on European legends and European horror stories or feature zero to no Latino characters that, and if they're there, do they make it towards the end? Maybe not. Um, <laughs> and they get so, killed off early. <laughs> yeah, definitely not the final, the final character left. So for us, it was like, this is one genre that we know already has a huge gap in terms of how Latinos consume it and how it's being made. And so we said, this is going to be our franchise where we're going to tell Latin American legends set in Latin America with Latin American characters. And so our first season of Cronicas was about these things called Los Nahuales, which are basically like werewolves, but they also turn into other characters like snakes and things like that. And the show, you know, we did it super high production value. We recorded with this thing called binaural audio where, you know, you literally have a mic that looks like a head and people can walk around it. And so it here, like if you're wearing headphones, the show, you can feel things coming up from behind you, but it's just because of the way that we recorded it with this special mic. And we had, you know, the voice actor who's done Homer Simpson in Mexico for like 20 years. That was our big celebrity for that season star in the show. And the show sort of ricocheted up to number one podcast in general in Mexico. And it did really, really well. And that was our first success of this is an original show that Sonora produced fully in-house, wrote, you know, direct production, casting, marketing. And we were able to launch it and people really, really loved it. Next sort of few months after that, we sort of launched a few similar series. The big one, of course, is a show called Toxicomania, which launched in April of 21, which was Again, similarly mission-driven, but always entertaining, right? It was based on a true story, a Mexican doctor in the 1940s that convinced the president of Mexico to legalize all drugs for six months, which no one knows happened. Like for six months in Mexico, all drugs were legal and you could get them in government-mandated dispensaries. And it was this doctor's way of saying, hey, this is how we build a progressive society. This was a, an obvious one. Again, it's like the com combination of our mission, which is this is a story about Latinos, in particular Mexicans, and drugs that you haven't seen before. Because when you think Mexico drugs in media, you think narcos. But this was actually something very different. But then what we did is we turned it into a really entertaining sort of like dramatic thriller. We were inspired by movies like The Big Short and things like that, where it was like it was teaching you something about history, but in a way that was really, really entertaining. And then we partnered with the actor Luis Gerardo Mendez, who's an amazing Mexican star and really sort of starting to come into his own in the U.S., to executive produce and star in the project. And that show 
did insanely well. We launched on 420. So again, it was like the combination of mission, entertainment, production value, the right partner, and also a really sort of strategic marketing launch of like, this is obviously a story that people are going to love and it's about drugs. So we're going to launch around 420. And it did really, really well. It was number one in Mexico, across Latin America, number two in the United States in fiction, even though it was only in Spanish. And now we just announced earlier this year that it's going to be developed into a film at Paramount+. And so that to me is like a perfect case study of what we really tried to do that first year is like, let's partner with the best creators. Let's make the best content and see if people love it. And I think we proved that to ourselves that first sort of year, year and a half. When you enter the call, like the Mexican creator and audio landscape, was it competitive? Were there a lot of other production companies that were either Latin America based, Mexico based, or from the US that were trying to kind of operate in that market? And two, follow up question was there a sense of with the creators that were there, did a lot of them want to create in audio and it kind of expand their creator ambitions? Or was it something like, oh, we didn't even know that we can do this. But then after talking with you, Camilla, and your team, they're like, oh, yeah, typically I just create a bunch of videos on YouTube or whatever else. But I'd love to do something in a more scripted or premium narrative form in podcasting. Let's figure out what that looks like together. Yeah, I think in terms of the landscape, I mean, there were very few to none established. Like there were a lot of independent creators. So we actually, our head of production, Andres Vargas, he is sort of this great heart of like the Mexican podcast creator network. Like he, he was a really uh, a first mover there for sure. And I think, you know, we worked together really to bring on a lot of these early sort of chat show podcasts into our network to sort of kickstart that. But there wasn't a lot of established companies there. There weren't any. And so for us, really, it was a mainly sort of an education challenge, not so much the creators. Like I think there were, like I said, independent comedians or, you know, wellness experts that had already sort of started to realize, oh, this is like this podcasting thing is makes a lot of sense for me to expand into. And we focused on working with them, but really more so for the talent. So like for our scripted projects is explain, you know, explaining that, hey, you don't have to have hair and makeup. You can just go into the studio for literally four hours and you make a whole series. And I think for us, that was how, especially when we were early on, sort of unknown, reaching out to these huge stars like Luis, being able to pitch it as this is still a really, and this is what I love about audio, right? Is like, it's still, even though it's been around for a good chunk of time, and you could argue all the way back to, you know, radio dramas and radio plays, like it still feels like such a creative and experimental space. And I think that's what got a lot of the talent in particular that we were speaking to for our scripted projects excited that they could try something different. This wasn't sort of your traditional production where you had to go in with like a 5 a.m. call time. Like it was very much, especially in early COVID days, it's like you could do it from your house. We'll send you a kit. No worries. We'll do it over Zoom. But it was a lot of education really for for them, for their managers. But people were excited. I think they thought this is a chance for me to play and for me to have fun and for me to do something different. And which made the whole experience, especially of those early recordings, just really special. So going back to a point that we talked about with your experience at the LA Times, it was follow the content, but then figure out the business model. How do we make this sustainable? So what did that look like for you working with Josh and the team of like, okay, we found this incredible creator community. We have these shows that are becoming number one in their local markets and they're crossing international borders into the US and more. But how do we actually generate sustainable revenue for this? And what are the right revenue streams, you know, beyond what everyone just talks about for podcast ad sales, et cetera? So what was some of the initial work? What did that look like for you guys? And where does that look like kind of going forward as you think about the medium and monetization differently? Yeah, absolutely. I think in Mexico in particular, again, it was all about education, education, education. And I think for us, since we focused that first year really on just launching great shows and making sure that they were hits, then our counterparts in Mexico were able to go to brands and say, hey, look, we already know this works and sort of explain a little bit the medium and how to interact with consumers and how to write an audio ad. So it's still early days in that market, but we've been able to work with really amazing brands like McDonald's, like Netflix. A lot of CPG brands in particular are really excited about the space. And so I think we're really, the more we talk to brands every month, it gets easier. And I think, you know, we're, the podcast market in the US was maybe four years ago is where they're at right now. And I think we're reaching those sort of innovators in the brand space that are excited to try something new. And it's working really well for them. And we're getting a lot of a lot of people that come back and back again, because the audience for podcasting is the traditional ones that you see here in the US. They are younger, they have more 
disposable income typically. And so I think a lot of the brands are really excited about that. And in the U.S., of course, it's a totally different game. You have your sort of direct response advertisers, which are like the bread and butter of podcast advertising. But what we're really excited about is bigger brand presenting sponsorships, especially in our fiction series. That is where we're really looking to double down on in this year. For example, we had a show called Princess of South Beach, which was a 36-episode telenovela in English and in Spanish. And Lincoln came on as a presenting sponsor. And we produced this really incredible sort of uh, integrated piece into the content itself. So it was a sort of funny telenovela set in Miami. And we created a chat show or a TV show, basically like an e-news called Tea with Tatiana, where she was talking to people around sort of the family that the show was about while integrating Lincoln in a really seamless way. So for us, it's always about like thinking a few steps ahead of like, what's the market going to look like in a year or two? And how can we get ahead of that? And how can we be really, really creative about the way that we integrate brands so that it doesn't disrupt the content, number one, but also it gives them better value. And it gives them much more sort of like seamless integration with the content that we already know listeners are loving. And so that's really what we're focused on in the US in particular is like those bigger integrations into in particular our scripted content. Camilla, as a young rising leader where you raised your hand and essentially got to be at the helm of what is the new like LA Times Studio division where you're helping to tell stories in different ways. And now you're a co-founder at Sonoro. Looking back on your young career, what are some of your leadership learnings to date? Upon reflecting of you as a leader earlier on, maybe like a few years back to the leader you are today, what have you learned and what do you want to keep working on? The main thing I've learned has probably been like more about human interaction, how you work with people and how you build a team, right? I think at the LA Times in particular, like newsrooms are tough because it's like the business side traditionally and, you know, over the years has never, hasn't always been super friendly. And so what I learned really well there and also building a team over Zoom these last few years is communication is critical and like over communicating and making sure everyone knows what they're supposed to be doing, why, and just offering up the opportunity to answer questions and to be there as a a leader that listens to people and to listen to maybe questions they have about work, about their life. Like, I think for me, that's always really important and something that I've valued from mentors in my life of they're there to listen and they're not going to I was a very precocious sort of like early career person. I was always like, why is this happening? Or what's hap- what's going on? And I wanted to know as much as possible. And so Communication, I think, is something that I always valued as like a younger employee or as like an early career. And so that's always what I'm trying to communicate or to, I guess, convey to our employees now and to back then the the newsroom is like, I want to be someone that they have a lot of FaceTime with and that communicates a lot with them about strategy and about what we're doing, what we're doing and gets them really excited. I like that. I run a, a lean team, but I realize. I can never over-communicate. So things that I just assume that the team knows, the reality is that they don't. Like these things are in my head. And so every day it's important to just remind the team like, what is our mission? What are we focused on? What were wins from yesterday? What are learnings and what are we maybe changing? That is literally a daily conversation. And I would much rather over-communicate than under-communicate. So I think that's very well said. Another point here is you now have investors. You raised a round of capital a couple of years ago from some blue chip firms. And what have the learnings been there for you where you're following the content, you're building community around your shows, you're figuring out the business model and driving new revenue, but you also have to answer to a board. What is that like for you? I mean, I think that's been sort of the most exciting thing for me, honestly. What I have learned from working with our investors is just really relying on them to jump in when we have questions and using them as sort of experts in the field too. And I think that's, they're there to help us, right? And they're there to work with us and to partner with us on this venture. And so for me, it's really, in particular, you know, we have some younger people that we work with and younger investors that are sort of my age and collaborating with them on how to be leaders and how to build this business. And just sort of, again, having that open dialogue and open communication of, not being afraid to ask them questions, I think has been sort of the biggest learning for me and the part that's been most exciting about working with them. Realizing that good investors are really allies and partners to your business. These are not overlords that are micromanaging or only coming in when things are tough. Like they're there to be there for the good and the bad. And when you have a really great set of investors, they can really amplify your business in an incredible way. Look, a final note, 
before we transition to our rapid fire segment is, Camilla, what are you excited about for what's next at Sonoro? For what's coming up in the rest of 2022 and beyond, tell us about the future vision and what that looks like for you. First and foremost, I'm really excited about all of the shows that we have cooking for this year. Earlier this summer, we launched a rom-com called Love and Noribang, which was a really beautiful story that featured a Mexican-American character and a Korean character falling in love. That was just incredibly well done with an amazing cast. We have so many other shows in the works that I think are going to get people really excited. I'd also say that we have a lot of really great announcements coming up in terms of derivatives for our projects that I'm excited to get out into the world. And and really, honestly, for this year and next year to really bulk up that part of the business as well. You know, we've launched some incredible, incredible podcasts, but now I'm excited for those to start cooking as TV shows or films and for people to start hearing about that and hopefully watching them soon. That is definitely what I'm what I'm very excited about. Awesome. Before rapid fire, Camilla, I'm just going to give you some kudos. So I've known Josh for a few years now and spent a decent amount of time with him. I've also known Adam Sachs for like about a lifetime, right? And he was actually the first person that I interviewed on the Come Up podcast. Both of them have said amazing things about you, but we have never met in person until literally just yesterday. And now I understand why they say such good things. I think hearing how you stayed so true to your heart and passionate about following content and exploring different mediums, how you've then followed this like exciting serendipitous path to put you at the forefront of this incredible new media industry, like in podcasting and all things audio. I think it's an incredible story for you. And I understand why you are one of these young up and coming leaders, because you have such incredible content vision. You have a very clear understanding of what fans want and how to delight them. And I think you do marry both sides of the media brain of having really strong creative intuition, but really strong business savvy and just leaning in to get stuff done. So I give you a ton of accolades and I've already been excited about Sonoro's business like well before this conversation, but walking away from this interview remain even more excited and I'm pumped to have the rest of this business community and listeners spend more time with the shows that Sonoro is putting out into the world. So job very well done. Well, thank you. I really appreciate that. (laughs) Yeah, you're welcome. All right, so we're going to move on to the rapid fire. This is the final segment. Very simple rules, Camilla. The rules are as follows. So I'm going to ask you, I think, six or seven questions. And the responses are to be one sentence or maybe just a couple words. Do you understand the rules? I understand and am wary of the rules. (laughs) Okay, here we go. Proudest life moment. I think founding Sonoro, closely followed up by, and this might be lame, getting into Harvard was a pretty big deal for me. (laughs) Those are both fantastic. What do you want to do less of for the remainder of 2022? Less reactivity, more proactivity. What one to two things drive your success? I think our employees and the work that they do drives me a lot and also my, my family. Advice for media and podcast execs going into the second part of this year? Listen to the consumer. Listen to the listeners. Um, I think they have, you know, I'm using too many words. I'm going to follow your rules. Listen to the listeners. (laughs) I dig it. Any future startup ambitions? Oh, boy. My heart and soul is in Sonora right now. So we'll see what happens after. But that's all I can think about at the moment. Maybe you can have a conversation when Josh isn't listening. Um, Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, I actually want to go back to one of the rapid fire questions. When you say you want to be more proactive, just tell me a little bit more about about that. I think when you're building a startup, it gets very easy to get caught up in the day-to-day and the little fires and the things that pop up and exciting new opportunities. And I think for me, it's it's really, it's similar to, you know, I, I meditate quite a bit and just staying present and saying, okay, what am I working on right now? What's And staying focused and just being more proactive, I think, about thinking of, solutions, new ideas, new projects. Like we do a lot of that, but I think especially in the in the moment that we're in, it's easy to get caught up in what's happening day to day and what comes up. Sort of I think sitting more with thoughts and with our strategy and our content and and being more proactive about what's next and those steps that we're taking. Easy final question. How can people get in contact with you? Well, they can reach me on email probably camila at sonoromedia.com. Maybe I'll regret that, but <laughs> Feel free to reach out. Uh, I would say that we have some pretty great (laughs) listeners, so the quality of inbound should hopefully be good. Yeah, I'm not worried about it. All right, Camilla, that's it. Thanks for being on the show. Yeah, thank you so much. This was awesome. Ah, that was such a fun interview with Camilla. 
Like I said, I had never met her before yesterday. So it was really nice to spend time with her on the podcast and hear her story. It truly is remarkable. And I'm really pumped to see what she does next at Sonoro. All right, quick heads up that our company has a new service offering. We just introduced Rockwater Plus, which is for companies who want an ongoing consulting partner at a low monthly retainer, yet also need a partner who can flex up for bigger projects when they arise. So who is this for? Well, three main stakeholders. One, operators who seek growth and better run operations. Two, investors who need help with custom industry research and diligence. And three, leadership who wants a bolt-on strategy team and thought partner. So what is included with Rockwater Plus? We do weekly calls to review KPIs or any ad hoc operational needs. We create KPI dashboards to do monthly performance tracking. We do ad hoc research ranging from customer surveys to case studies to white space analysis, financial modeling where we can understand your addressable market size, do P&L forecasts, ROI analyses, even cash runway projections. We also do monthly trend reports to track new co-launches, M&A activity, partnerships activity in the space. And lastly, we make strategic introductions to new hires, investors for fundraising, and then also potential commercial strategic partnerships. So if any of this sounds appealing or you want to learn more, uh, reach out to us at hello at wearerockwater.com. We can set a call with our leadership. All right. Lastly, we love to hear from our listeners. If you have any feedback on the show or any ideas for guests, shoot us a note at tcupod at wearerockwater.com. All right. That's it, everybody. Thanks for listening. Come Up is written and hosted by me, Chris Irwin, and is a production of Rockwater Industries. Please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts. And remember to subscribe wherever you listen to our show. And if you really dig us, feel free to forward the Come Up to a friend. You can sign up for our company newsletter at wearerockwater.com forward slash newsletter. And you could follow us on Twitter at TCUPod. The Come Up is engineered by Daniel Turek. Music is by Devin Bryant. Logo and branding is by Kevin Zazali. And special thanks to Alex Zirin and Eric Kenningsberg from the Rockwater team.